Well, good morning. Get your Bibles and open to John chapter 16. We're looking today at verses 4 through 15. Uh, If you have one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, it's on page 902. Page 902. John 16, 4 through 15, as uh, Jeff mentioned, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of John. It has been a rich study so far, and we trust and pray that it will continue in that richness. We know it will because it is God's Word. Jesus continuing talking, and we'll, we'll catch us up after this reading, but let's, let's go ahead and just jump right in. Verse 4, Jesus says, But I have said these things to you, speaking to his disciples, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day already that has been a a wonderful day to gather together as brothers and sisters and friends to hear your word read partake of communion together, to sing your praises. And now as we turn our hearts toward the proclamation of your word, I pray, Father, that um, I will be humble in my presentation, that you will open our ears to the truth of the gospel. You will open my mouth to proclaim it rightly. You will impact our wills that we may Lord, believe it and obey it. We thank you for this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. No one likes saying goodbye. Most of us don't like to say goodbye. Whether it's a college kid heading off to college or grandparents going back home up north or down south or across the way, or those who have left us and moved from this place to other states. No one likes to say goodbye. I can remember a time when I was, um, I think it was my first semester in college. I was attending a college in Oklahoma. My parents lived in, in uh, South Texas. I was 10 hours away from home, and it may as well have been 1,000 miles. 
I don't remember what had happened, but I know that it was a rough semester. This was pre-Linda. This was way, way (laughs) pre-Hayden. I don't think I had even met my wife at that point. But it was just a tough semester. And my parents made the trek up to see me and just to visit for a weekend. And we had a great time, you know, going and eating out and talking and being around and all that business. And it came time for them to say goodbye. And I can remember standing out in front of my dorm room. My parents' car is there. My mother gives me a hug and a kiss and says, we love you, son, you know, be good, all those good things. She used to always have this funny saying. She would say, <laughs> she would say don't tell her I said, well, she's probably listening. But she would say, uh, <laughs> she would say, be good. And if you can't be good, look innocent. <laughs> Spoken like a true, southern, a true Southern mother, right? So, uh, and I came to, you know, and so I hugged and kissed her, and then uh, she got in the car, and my dad came around and grabbed me and gave me a hug, and something in me broke, and I could not let him go. The tears just flowed, and I just could not release him. And I can remember him just hugging me and was surprised by that, and he just held on to me and just kept kind of giving this, hmm. Mm. Mm, right? To his boy who he, he loved. I'm the firstborn. And uh, finally they had to get in the car and, and leave. Now on one level you could have said, man, they could have just stayed there, right? Just stayed there forever. Never let their boy go. Never let their boy grow up. Never let their boy, you know, get married, leave the house, have children, go off and grow up and do all the things that that happens when you move into manhood or adulthood. But they had to go. They had to say goodbye. Here we find in this passage, we take up right in the middle here of Jesus' goodbye speech. This is Jesus' goodbye speech. It's known by theologians as his farewell discourse. And Jesus has been warning his disciples that he has to go. And they are filled with sorrow. In John 13, 33, a few chapters earlier, Jesus tells them, he speaks to them, and he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. He's speaking to grown men, but he, but he sees them as his little children, his beloved children. It's only a little bit longer, and I have to go. In John 15, only a few weeks ago, we saw where he told them, the world has hated me. They've hated Jesus, and because you're my disciples, they will hate you also. And in the same way that I suffer, you will suffer also. Jesus here has shared his last supper with his disciples, what we refer to as communion. He shared that last supper, that time of Passover with them. And then we remember how he sent Judas, his betrayer, into the darkest of nights. And now he continues to talk with his friends in the upper room. He says to them, I have said these things to you. I've warned you. I've encouraged you that when their hour comes, you'll remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. Jesus here doesn't say that In this passage that he's returning to the Father, but he's going to him who sent me. Jesus was sent, and this is the language of mission. 
Jesus was sent from the Father. Yes, he was sent on a mission to do what? Luke tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John tells us in his masterful prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later John says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, notice he, who is this light? Who is this life? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not recognize him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, The eternal Son of God was made flesh and came and walked among us, walked among humanity, came to this world. Jesus came as the light of the world, and now He speaks to those who are His, those who are assembled before Him in this passage, His true friends, who were the first fruits of the church, and they are the children of God, those who have received Him. And He tells them, I've got to go. I've got to go. And sorrow fills their hearts. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Standing there listening to your master, to your Lord. We've all had deep friends, good friends, friends in college, parents, mentors, professors, people that that got a hold of us and invested in us and cared for us. And we love them dearly. The disciples have walked with him talked with him. They've ate with him. They've sat at his feet listening with amazement to his teaching. They've watched him walk on water, quiet the storm, turn water to wine, feed thousands, heal the blind, heal the lame, heal the suffering, and raise the dead. And now, just after he's told them that they will be hated and suffer for his namesake, at the moment when they need him the most, he tells them he's got to go. He must go. It was necessary for him to go. Why? I mean, where's he got to go? Where's he got to be? Jesus has to go to suffer, to die, to be buried, to be resurrected, to ascend, and to send. And to send. That brings us to the necessity of his going. Jesus says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who is Jesus speaking of here? He says, the Helper. 
capital H, the helper. The word in the Greek here is paraclete. Paraclete. It refers to the advocate, could be translated that way, or a helper, or another helper like himself. This helper is the Holy Spirit. Now, a few comments about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. He is a he and not an it. He's a he and not an it. He's a person, not a force or influence or some neutral energy to be channeled and manipulated for, his own, uh, for our own selfish wills. Uh, I was, I was uh, enjoying myself with my son on, I think, Thursday night. We went out to Biola University to hear a lecture called uh, Star Wars and the Abolition of Man. <laughs> it was a great lecture. So you have Star Wars and you have C.S. Lewis' great book, The Abolition of Man. And this professor was taking those two things and, and comparing and contrasting and working through these things. And, of course, we all are familiar with the force, right? The force. Is the force a person? Is the, does the force have a will of its own? No. In Star Wars mythology, the force is just neutral energy or power that can be used by the dark or the light. The Holy Spirit in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, the second person or the third person of the Trinity is not this neutral energy that can be manipulated for our own purposes and wills. The Holy Spirit, like the Father, like the Son, is a person, part of the triune God. And being a person, the Holy Spirit has a will of His own. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. As the second person of the Trinity, the, uh, as the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is both co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. He has existed eternally in perfect harmony, union, love, and communication with the Father and the Son. None of the persons of the Trinity have ever experienced loneliness like Allah, who is alone as a God. The triune God exists in unity and diversity. Unity in the oneness, unity within their one nature or being, which is divinity and godness. And diversity as persons with distinct roles and wills. Jesus tells his disciples that he must go so that he can send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Helper. In short, while Jesus will soon, in a few times here, in a few moments, he will commission the disciples. Just as he was sent, he will send them on their mission. And we remember in Matthew, the Great Commission, right? Jesus before he ascends to the Father, says this, Go therefore and make, na- make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the, Holy, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commissions his disciples to go and do this impossible task. And they will not be able to achieve it. They will, will not be able to, to be successful at all in this task if they don't have help. And that's who Jesus is sending to them. It's, it's a necessity that he goes away so that then he will send the helper, the Holy Spirit. This brings us to our third point, the helper that he is sending. Verses 8 through 15, Jesus says, I've got to go away and I will send you the helper. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
Verse 80 says, And when he comes, he will do these things. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So we're going to take those kind of one at a time. First, he says, this this helper, the Holy Spirit, will come and convict the world of sin. What does this mean? It means to, to bring to light. The word translated convict here means to bring to light or to expose or to refute to show that the world and the world system is unholy. What else would the Holy Spirit do? He is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is light. There is no darkness within him. And so just as when you shine a bright light on something, you see the blemishes. Uh, you've been there, haven't you? You go into certain uh, places to buy clothing, and some stores have really great mirrors where I look awesome. <laughs> And I, I walk out like, oh my man, I look, I, I am awesome. I look great. And you go into another uh, store and you walk up that mirror and it, it shines on you're like, oh my goodness, do I actually look that old? Is that how? I didn't notice those wrinkles, that blemish, that thing that the light has a way of showing the problems, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit is holy and righteous and pure and true. And when he comes, he will convict. He will bring to light. He will expose the world and show where it is wrong. Like God's prosecutor, the Holy Spirit establishes the evidence of the world's unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit establishes the evidence of the world's unrighteousness. He says, this is not right. This is not how it should be. This is not right. This is not right. There's something wrong with this. And he does that, and he proclaims the world guilty. Guilty. The Holy Spirit brings his verdict against the world and proclaims that the world is guilty. Recently, we taught through C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And in it, he was, he was a, this was an atheist. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and many other wonderful pieces. Most of us have, know him for that, probably. He was an atheist in, in, in Oxford, and and he came to faith in Christ, actually through, through his relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien and some other believers who he knew at Oxford. And at one point he was talking about injustice, and, and uh, that's one of the reasons I don't believe in God, because the world is so unjust. And Lewis at some point said to himself, well, wait a minute, how do I get the idea that the world is unjust if there's not such a thing as justice, and where does this justice come from? He says, how do I know that a line is crooked if there's not such a thing as a straight line? The Holy Spirit comes. He brings conviction. He shows us that things in the world are not straight. We see things and we say to ourselves, this shouldn't be. But not only does he convict the world, but the Holy Spirit also brings conviction, if I can say it like that. He not only convicts the world and shows that the world is wrong, but also that individuals are wrong as well. And he can bring them to conviction where they can admit that they're wrong. This is exactly what happens with the account of the thief on the cross 
in Luke 23, 39 through 43. Remember, Jesus is crucified. We'll be getting there in the next few weeks. Jesus is crucified, and there on either side of him, he's being crucified with criminals, one on each side. And Luke, the doctor, says this in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What happens there? Really, it's a precursor to what happens in the church when the Holy Spirit is fully poured out on Pentecost. But here it happens on the cross as this man comes under conviction. And we could sing, as we used to sing from the old hymn, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, and creating faith in Him. One thief is convicted, both are convicted, but one has conviction where he admits, I'm wrong. He confesses. He agrees with the verdict. I'm guilty. Jesus, help me. And there's hope for each of us here today, isn't there, because of that very thing. There's hope for us that we can also admit guilty. Jesus, please help me. We see this again in uh, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the, the Holy Spirit is poured out. What Jesus is speaking of, that I will send the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost comes and, 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 and all are gathered, every tongue, tribe, and nation there. At least 3,000 are, are saved that day. But there's a multitude of people to hear. And Peter stands up with the apostles and Peter preaches. And the Holy Spirit is poured out as he finishes his sermon with these words. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Stirring words, stinging words, harsh words. Except for the Holy Spirit being poured out, I believe if Peter preached the same, same sermon only a few days earlier, he would have been crucified. He would have been stoned. He would have been killed. All the apostles. But now the Holy Spirit is there. And how do they respond? Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Have you ever been cut to the heart? I can remember one time, I've, I've told this before, but I remember having some, a vigorous discussion with my wife. I'll call it that. <laughs> I knew I was right. She was clearly wrong. Because I'm right and she's wrong, right? We were having a vigorous discussion. My pride was there. My voice was raised. At that time, Hayden was about four years old. I heard one of the children this morning call Daddy Dada. I can't remember who, who it was. But he was still at that age when he still called me Dada. He walked into the kitchen and I was leaning back against the counter having taken a break. And, uh, <laughs> yes. It was that bad. And he walked in, he looked up at me, four years old, and he says, Dada, 
you shouldn't talk to mama like that. And my heart was so hard and bitter at that point that I said to my four-year-old son, why? (laughs) Bad, bad. And he looked up at me and says, because you love God. And my heart was cut. I was cut to the heart. He spoke truth to me. You don't treat mom like that. Not because mom is perfect and beautiful and great, which we all think she is, right? But no, no, because of your love of God. Because you love God, you treat her the way she should be treated because she's made in the image of God. She's your beautiful wife. She's the wife of your youth. She's the one who, who God has given to you, who's granted to you, who's, who's blessed you with this wonderful son who now speaks the truth to me. And I'm telling you, I was, I was cut to the heart And I confessed and I admitted, you're right. You're right. Where's mama? (laughs) Tell mama to come in here. I got to go find her. Ask her forgiveness. When they hear Peter's words, you've crucified the Lord of glory. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When you're truly cut to the heart, you have to respond. You can't just simply go, oh, well, that's it. I'm okay. I'm moving on. She'll be all right. No, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn, turn in your unbelief and and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Conviction. Conviction. Recently, the pastors and many of the men were blessed to be at the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles. And there we gathered with about, I think, about 4,000 pastors from, I think, over 40 countries. It's like, almost like being at the UN. Some of the guys are wearing headphones. They're speaking in Spanish and Russian and you know, other languages. And we had the blessing to hear uh, a speaker there, a preacher named Vodi Bakum. Vodi Bakum is a wonderful godly man. He is living now in Africa, but he grew up in South Central LA. And Vodi recounted how, as a man growing up in South Central LA, how he was raised by a a single Buddhist mother, how he grew up in, in, in an area that was very tough, much like where I was teaching when I taught in Watts for 10 years, in an area that was dangerous. I can remember walking my children to the, to the library, uh, as I was teaching there and having days when we would literally hit the ground because people would drive by and start shooting. And Vodibachan recounted how, how really, with the current cultural system, with, the, with all the talk that is going on, what people would believe about Vodibachan, this, this young black man who grew up in the inner city with a single mother in a gang-infested area who did not know Jesus, that what he really needed was to have his oppressors taken away. What he really needed was racial justice. That's what the world would tell him. You need racial justice. You need wokeism. You need CRT. You need all these things to help raise you up out of this inner city dilemma. And Vodi Bakum, with tears streaming down his face, speaking to these pastors, said, I praise God that someone told me that what I needed was not racial justice. I needed to hear that I was under the justice of God. 
and I was guilty. And what I needed was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Vody Bauckham says, I, I needed to hear that I was guilty, that I was a sinner, and that I needed a Savior. And praise God that someone looked through me and into me and gave me the gospel of Jesus Christ. He needed to be convicted by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're thankful because that man is doing a, a mighty and a, and a beautiful work. If you have a chance, you can go and listen to that sermon online, and, and I, I know that you will be moved. Well, let's go back and look again at the other activities of the Spirit that Jesus communicates. Verse 8 again. And when he comes, Jesus said, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The helper will come, Jesus says, and he will convict the world of sin. The whole world will be held accountable to a holy, righteous, and pure spirit, which is God. They will be found guilty before the holy, righteous God. And those who are God's children, the elect, will also be convicted, but their conviction will turn to repentance, just as the thief on the cross and the thousand at Pentecost and every one of you brothers and sisters experienced when you came to Christ. We heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit convicted us of sin. We confessed our, and agreed with His spiritual testimony that it was true. And then we desired to be in a relationship with, a, with our Heavenly Father again. But how could that happen? How could a sinful people relate to a holy father? We needed one who could enter the presence of God, who could enter into the presence of the God of the universe, who could enter into the presence of the Father. And that person is Jesus Christ. The third person of the Trinity comes into this world to testify, to testify for and about him. The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus and and he comes and he, and he testifies and says that Jesus is able to go to the Father because of his righteousness. You see, Scripture teaches that no one can see God and live. But Jesus is able, because of his sinless nature and his atoning sacrifice, he's able to go in righteousness to the Father on our behalf. John 1, 6 says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven accomplished two great things, uh, says one theologian. First, it reversed the verdict of the Jewish leaders who condemned Jesus, condemning them instead. Second, it, provo- it, it, it proves that Christ's saving work for us was accepted by the Father. The resurrection was the Father's seal of approval on the life and death of His Son. And the sending of the Holy Spirit from the Father was the final proof that Jesus had succeeded in reconciling believers with God. F.B. Meyer says this, The work of Jesus on men's behalf, finished at the cross, accepted by the Father, of which the resurrection is witness, presented by our great high priest within the veil is the momentous truth which the Holy Spirit brings home to the convinced sinner. Mackine, great Scottish theologian of many years ago, said this, The second work of the faithful ministry is to do the very same as the Spirit, to lead weary souls to Christ, to stand pointing not only to the coming deluge, speaking of the flood, not only to, to, to point at the flood, 
but to the reality offered by the ark, pointing not only to the threatening storm, but the strong tower of safety, directing sinners not only inward to their own sin and misery, but outward also to the bleeding, dying, rising, reigning Savior. This is what the Holy Spirit does when He comes. He, yes, he, sh- he shows that the world is unrighteous and that there's problems and those things, those problems, those quote-unquote mistakes, those are sins. It's not the way it ought to be. He doesn't just point to this, the coming disaster, but He points to the Savior. He points to the rescue. He points to the ark, which is Christ. And finally, the ruler of this world has been judged. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will do that as well. His sentence has been passed. The ruler of this world, Satan, his sentence has been passed. He is guilty. He is sentenced. He is cast out. He is condemned. The apostle says that when Jesus nailed our sins to the cross, putting away our condemnation, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Moreover, Jesus has judged all that is glorified in this Satan-ruled world. The things that we want to glorify, the things that the world system glorifies. What are those things? Power, wealth, prestige, worldly glory, carnal pleasure. Skip Ryan writes this, In the triumph of Christ, the false one, the liar, the accuser who wants to hold up false standards of judgment has been defeated. Do you evaluate yourself by your appearance, your wealth, your standard of living, your success, the opportunities you have, the clubs which you belong? The accuser lies and tells us to see ourselves in this way. And Jesus comes to reveal him as the liar. The liar. Scripture says when he speaks, when he speaks, he speaks his native language. His native language is lying. I don't know if you've been, ever been around a person who, who struggles in that way. Or some may not even struggle in that way. They've told lies so long that they become comfortable with it. It's a dangerous person to be around. Because you can never understand. You can never believe. You, you're always questioning where you stand with them. But Satan tells us he comes and speaks to us and he he tells us all these lies this is the way we should act this is the way we should be this is the way the world ought to be and jesus comes and he reveals satan as a liar the holy spirit comes and shows him to be what he is the progression outlined for the spirit's convicting ministry helps us to see the relevance the, the relevant relevance of this final conviction for the lives of christians so we're first convicted of our sin and guilt And then our forgiveness and righteousness in Jesus Christ comes. What conviction do we need then as we live as Christ's people in the world? This final conviction is this. We need the Spirit's conviction that the reign of Satan is really over. The reign of Satan is really over. Jesus has already told his disciples this concerning his cross. In John 12, 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now Now with a ruler... Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, John 12, 31. And so finally, our last few verses there. Let's look at verses 13 and 15. Finally, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will also do these things as well. When the Spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all truth, speaking again to his disciples gathered before him. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John Calvin says this regarding this passage. But what kind of spirit did the Savior promise to send? One who should not speak of himself, but suggest and instill the truths which he himself had delivered through the word. Hence the office of the Spirit promised to us is not to form new and unheard of revelations, or to coin a new form of doctrine by which we may be led away from the received doctrine of the gospel, but to seal on our minds the very doctrine that the gospel recommends. The unique job of the apostles, the unique job of the apostles was to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, write down for us that which we have now in our Bibles. That was the job that that they were to do, empowered by this coming Holy Spirit. He came to do this with them and through them. This Bible, it's what we call the Word of God. And that's what it is. We call it that because it is. It is the very Word of God. This Bible is inspired in such a way that to believe and obey it is to believe and obey God. It's inspired in such a way that to disbelieve and disobey it is to disbelieve and disobey God. It is the Word of God. And we have it as an objective standard. Imagine if, if, if Lynn and I are going out on a, on a date and we tell Hayden, listen, while we're gone, here's what you're to do. After you play your you know, uh, 45 minutes of Battlefront, and then uh, move on and finish your homework and do this and do that. You need to wash the dishes and take out the trash, okay? And so uh, mom, being a, a great mom, uh, believes that it's good to write a note, both for Hayden and for me, right? And so, and so we're going to write a note for you. And I like the notes because I can check it off. Did it? Yes. Okay, did it. Okay, did it, right? So she, we leave a note for the, for our son, for the son, the son, that we call him the boy. <laughs> we leave a note for the boy, right? Here's what you are to do. When we get back, we come and we're like, he's still on Battlefront. He's still playing. The trash is there. It's smelly and stinky. It's sitting in the middle of the, of the kitchen. It hasn't been taken out. The, di- the dishes are all piled up. And we're like, wait a minute, son, what did you do? You're, you, you've disobeyed your mother and father's directions. And he says, oh, no, no, I didn't. I didn't disobey you. I disobeyed the note. We're like, excuse, excuse me? I didn't disobey you. I love you. I obey you all the time. I just disobeyed the note. It's just a piece of paper with some words on it. That's all it is, is a piece of paper with some words on it. Some, some dads are looking around right now going, oh, I've been there, done that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not disobeying God. No, I'm di- this is just a book with some words on it. Friend, this is the word of God. To disobey God's holy word is to disobey God himself. He's given it to us for our good, for our good. This is, this is basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E, 
basic instructions before leaving earth. This is what we need to know. This is where we go. This is where we read. This is why we meditate on this word. This is why you, you come here each week and, and have guys like me stand up here and yell at you, okay, <laughs> to help us to live righteously, to live properly in this world, to love our neighbors, to be good, to, to be good, good friends, to be good employees, to be good husbands and fathers and wives and mothers to live as we ought to live, to glorify our God. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. The truth to which he is referring is what John Murray refers to as the truth that is deposited in the apostolic witness. And then Jesus finishes, he says this, He, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, when I send him, he will glorify me. The Spirit's job is always to turn people's hearts back toward Jesus. The Spirit is not there to draw attention to himself. Look at me, look at me, <laughs> right? No, he's there to point people toward Jesus Christ. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will take what is mine. He will take all that Jesus knows and is, and he'll declare it to his beloved disciples, to these apostles. And then Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine, why? Because I am the Son, and the Son inherits the Father's stuff. And so he says, all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so, so the Holy Spirit will come and glorify Jesus, and he will give what Jesus has to them. And Jesus, because he owns all, the Father's, all that the Father is, he will also get what the Father has as well. And you see Jesus concluding this section in this incredible Trinitarian uh, love situation. The, the Spirit is there. The Son is there. The Father is there in complete uh, love and communion, in unity and diversity. And we see that the Spirit will glorify the Son by giving the disciples that which is His and that which is the Father's. It will give to us and we will all ultimately glorify the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I pray for you today that have yet to come to know Jesus Christ, that today is the day of salvation. We said a lot of things today. And I pray that as you reflect on your own sin in your heart, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, that the Holy Spirit will do His work in your heart today and you will be convicted that you will be cut to the heart, that you will know that there's hope for you, there's hope for you today because of what Jesus Christ has done on his cross. And that Jesus, in his great love for us, has not left his disciples alone, has not left us, to lo us alone. He has sent his beloved Holy Spirit. And one of the amazing things about that sending is this. When Jesus was there incarnate, he couldn't be everywhere at once, could he? He could be with the disciples in Galilee. He could be there on the Dead Sea. He could be across here in this area or that area. But when he returned to the Father and he sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came and lived in all that love the Lord. And he's no longer bound by place or time. 24-7, those who believe in Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit helping us to do exactly what the Spirit does, helping us to glorify the Son and to live for 
the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessed son who came to this earth, who lived a perfect and sinless life, who went to the cross on our behalf in every area that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Lord, he did not. And so he died in our stead. Jesus, you lived the life I should have lived, and you've died the death I should have died. That's the gospel. Lord, help us by faith to believe it, to live it. We love you today. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.